I'd like to see... <laughs> Sorry, I wrote down three. I thought I was being quite... Um, <laughs> I'm saying, what Christmas. is Anaria? <laughs> Anaria. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. In this episode, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. Cassie Young. And Tom Oakley. Hi, everyone. We're going to focus on evidence-informed practice. And the twist for this is that Dr. Sam Sims has written the questions, the questions he would ask practicing teachers. And so we've got 60 minutes or so to really explore um, evidence-informed practice. And so the first question, I'm going to throw this your way, Tom, if that's okay. What's your favorite type of edu book? Books written by a research-informed teacher, books written by an academic who understands the classroom, or a collaborative endeavor written by academics and teachers together? I'd say that the books I'm enjoying reading and sharing most with colleagues at the moment are the in action series and that kind of straddles the fence of some of those categories doesn't it because it's practicing teachers talking about research and how they've applied it um but i can't not mention peps mccray's books can i i can't not mention those they are they're the ones i enjoy reading are the ones i revisit the most um so i'm probably straddling the fence on sam's options there but yeah, anything written by Pepsi McCray, I'm, I'm there. Um, you know, little disclaimer, I have notifications set up on my Twitter that when Peps tweets, my phone pings to say, you need to read this. Um, so, yeah, anything written by Pepsi McCray, uh, anything in the inaction series gets my attention. Yeah, I'm. Um, it's, for me, it depends on purpose. So I'm a big fan of your kind of research informed teacher stuff particularly if it's stuff I don't really know anything about yet if I want that introduction to something if it's something that I want to see you know practically applied naturally I'm going to the kind of research informed teacher but that said if it's something that I've started to know a little bit more about something that I've spent some time on then I naturally begin to gravitate towards things where maybe um, it's research themselves talking about their own work or talking about the work of the field they're in, because obviously they tend to be able to go into a little bit more depth. Um, but as I say, I don't tend to start there. There are plenty of books out there that are written by researchers that complain about the disconnect between research and practice. And then you read their book and you say, well, this is maybe partly the reason why it's a wonderful book, but yeah, your understanding of classroom practice and how teachers are going to interpret this are is um, maybe not there. I'd really like to see more of that researcher practicing teacher overlap, even if it's just as um, as basic as teacher writes a book. It's about research evidence on a particular area, and they reach out through a researcher and say, "If I write a you know a, a hundred word primer about what this is about, can you tell me if I'm on the right track?" or um, the reverse, where a researcher writes a book on a subject and then reaches out to teachers in different phases and says, please, can you read this? Please, can you say whether this actually, what I've written, does this apply? Does this make sense for 
teachers who are out there. So I'd love to see more of that. I know there's good stuff out there in that area, but um, I, I think there's definitely room for more of that. Yeah, if I remember correctly, that's what Danielle Colenbrander was doing. She was thinking, okay, here's what we think. How does this apply? And she, she worked quite closely with schools. Am I, remember, am I remembering that correctly, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. From what she said and just thinking about the way she communicated in that podcast, I think she's basically the gold standard when it comes to um, researchers communicating their work. Um, because, yeah, she makes great efforts in the role that she does to reach out to schools, to work collaboratively with them, and then to communicate things in a um, in a way that a busy teacher can apply. So, yeah, if in doubt, if you're a researcher out there thinking, how can I um, better reach out to schools, get in touch with Daniel Colenbrander. She's, um, yeah, excellent at it. I'm probably just going to repeat what Chris has just said, but basically I think it needs to be a mix of two. I think since changing uh, job roles and being out of the classroom, I've been a bit more research heavy, but uh, I think it needs a mix of two. I think that there needs to be a um, a familiarity when you read anything around research and how actually that might look on the ground. I think that it makes it a little bit more um, approachable and something you can kind of grapple with and reflect on your own practice. So I think it does need to be a bit of both. And yeah, agreeing with Chris that um, I think I've been contacted by people that are doing research and said, you know, what is the reality? What does that possibly look like? Can I talk this through? And I always think that that's a bit more of a powerful conversation that you you kind of think, actually, yeah, you want to understand it a bit better. It's not completely it's not completely theory based um, and you're getting the realities. So, yeah, I would say probably a mix of both. Nice. I think, uh, like you were saying, Tom Pepsi's books, I think it does quite a good job of, of straddling both as well because there's referencing, but also this is how it might look in, in, in practice, which is I think is, is really, really useful. Sam says that reading or hearing about evidence-informed practice is relatively easy, you know, particularly social media. Shifting practice to align with the is hard, you know, particularly if you think about the, uh, the cognitive biases that uh, prevent us from doing this sometimes. And he wants to know, what methods have you found work to help you embed change in your own classroom? And how do you hold yourself to account? I mean, I can dive in there if you like. Just uh, I'll start with just a couple of things, um, ironically, because I'm about to say that working on one thing at a time, or at least one thing in a particular um aspect of what I'm doing. So if, for example, I want to consider how to uh, improve my explanations, say, or reduce cognitive load while I'm doing my explanations in mathematics, I'm unlikely at the same time to be thinking, oh, I also want to be working on something to do with questioning in mathematics. I like to say, this is the thing I'm focusing on in this area. So prioritizing is um, central to what I'm doing. It doesn't, I say one thing at a time, it might be the case that I'm doing one thing in mathematics and I'm thinking about one thing I'm doing in my reading lessons, but at any given moment in a, in a given day, if I'm kind of trying to think, oh, I need to do X, Y, and Z, it's not going to happen. It's, I'm just going to end up doing all of them badly. And equally, even then across a day, if I'm trying to implement and try more than a couple or two or three different things, it's very difficult for me to reflect at the end of the day. So the first thing, prioritize, if in doubt, stick to one would be um, where I go. Just one more little thing. Um, I find that incorporating the help of 
other people in the room in the room so if i'm fortunate enough to be working with a teaching assistant and i'm trying something out and i'm trying to do something i'll often just say if you get a moment keep an eye on me when i'm doing this and am i doing it in the way that i think i'm doing it am i again going back to the idea of you know clarity of explanation am i being more clear am i being more deliberate if i've um, if i'm intentionally or trying to intentionally repeat myself in given um, aspects of an explanation am I doing that effectively or have I just thought that I've done it which is unfortunately much more common than um, I'd like it to be but yeah so those are two things I'd say to get started prioritizing and trying to incorporate extra observers to help out yeah I absolutely agree I think um, it can be very easy to stretch yourself really thin and we have to think about capacity what we've got time for, what we've got headspace for, what we've got knowledge of and what we don't have enough knowledge of yet. Often we want to improve in areas that we're not an expert in. And naturally, if we were an expert, we might be more effective. So reaching out, you know, getting that expert help. We've done that at our school. We reached out to Chris because one of the things that we want to work on is our reading fluency and delivered a great session. That's now given us a really good focus for spring term to develop in our practice. Um, and thinking about how we can utilize the resources we've got internally within, within, within our school, where is practice really effective? What's going well at the moment? Can I go and see that person teach? Can I get kind of into the detail? How are they putting those things in place so that it works well? And when it doesn't work well, how do they respond to that? And ideally getting that person into your room and showing how it might be done with with your class so now that you know some of the restrictions from covid have reduced getting people in literally into the classroom watching your environment like chris was saying getting a knowledgeable person who knows you knows your setting to see the impact of what you're trying can be really really helpful and if you don't have that knowledge in-house you might have a connection in a nearby school we've got two teachers in our school at the moment one in year two one in year six who really want to develop writing and they're working with really knowledgeable teachers from a local school within our trust who have been lead moderators for Key Stage 1 and Key Stage 2 writing. They've visited our school. They've learned about the context. They've watched lessons, invited our teachers to their setting so they can see how they teach writing. And that's going to be an ongoing like back and forth yo-yo between the teachers coming and going, keeping in contact regularly. And I think um, so, yeah, you know, like Chris says, think about capacity. What can you focus on at any one time? Don't stretch yourself too thin. Reach out to experts wherever possible uh, and ideally get people into your setting. Get them to support you on the journey. You know, if we want to become incrementally more expert, what is the one thing we're going to focus on now and who's the best person to help guide us on that journey? That's, that's what's working for us really well at the moment. I think that's really powerful because I think there are a lot of um, individual teachers working within schools or trusts that are not supported like that that actually they work in schools where being research informed isn't really a priority because what they do you know they've been doing for years and years and years and don't feel like they need to kind of reflect on practice and I think that you've got some individual teachers working in schools that feel quite isolated in the fact that they want to read about research and they want to reflect on their practice and they want to kind of be better at what they do um, or completely change it and I think it's important that that kind of networking what you were saying Tom about kind of finding people that have got those strengths that are doing things well or not necessarily 
kind of seeing themselves as doing something particularly well, but other people can see that they're having an impact and sharing that good practice. I think that's really important because I think that there are, you know, the, the question was that, you know, access to research is really easy. It's easy to kind of go on the internet and chuck something in Google search and find it or go on EEF and, and kind of start reading around it. But if you haven't got that network around you, you haven't got anyone to kind of say, actually, this is what's going on in my class. This is what I'm finding. Are you finding the same thing? Um, I think that's really important. So obviously, Tom, you had time in the classroom, then were an advisor for a period, and then now you're back. Have you noticed a difference in the willingness to be evidence-informed across those two? And obviously, your time in the class initially spanned different continents. So <laughs> I think you've got a lot to bring to this, this part of the conversation. Yeah, so uh, for those who don't know me, I was a class teacher for 11 years, including teaching in Asia for two, then a local authority maths advisor for six years, and now I'm uh, back in school working as a deputy head teacher. And in the time period in which I was a maths advisor, in those six years, there was a noticeable change within that six years. Within the kind of 2016 to 2022 I don't know what happened or what catalyzed it. I'd like to say that in my local authority, I might have made a little bit of a difference to it. But there became an increasing interest in reading, research. And that might have been supported by the way in which uh, trainees were taught. It might have been the fact that we're starting to see the impact of some of the MPQs and that the people who went on those themselves had to access research and use that to, to further themselves as they, as they went in. But yeah, in the time that I was an advisor, I saw a noticeable shift in the use of research to inform decision making, school improvement planning, those kind of things. And and the last few years, particularly teachers joining the profession as in, um, you know ECTs now who come in knowing some of the things that I didn't know for the first 10, 11 years of my teaching, you know, coming in, knowing about things that we're now really grateful that teachers come in knowing more about, you know, how memories are made and stored and you know how we develop our understanding over time would have been i did a four-year teacher training degree back in you know early 2000s uh, but none of that was covered at no stage in those four years did we think about the cognition of learning but now teachers who do a one-year training degree get a little bit of an insight to that and then they get two more years and i think that's really supported that um so yeah and i think it's easier to come across evidence-informed practice now i think the danger sometimes is that lethal mutation when people try and do something on their own with best intention i've read about this thing and i want to try it out and here's how i'm going to make it work for my context if they're not well supported in doing so if they don't have a good network whether it be people within their school trust advisors etc it's very easy to end up doing something like what you intended to do um, and again you know, that's how the lethal mutations might happen. No one intends for them to be, you know, a Frankenstein version of what they read about, but it can often end up that way if we're not well supported or well connected. Yeah. I mean, I think obviously Sam's written the questions for us. His work has gone a long way to supporting us in exploring exactly what it is that might make a difference, you know, so we can read as much as we want, but here are the ways that this is likely to have an impact on your, on your professional development and the professional development across a, across a school. So I think, yeah, I think in terms of, you know, the likelihood, you know, it, it's come up a lot on this, on the podcast so far this year, that 
you know, I've been working with these early career teachers. I'm thinking, well, what what do I teach you next? Because <laughs> because you've you sort of got a lot of it mapped out. And I think once you've got some of those fundamentals in place, it really becomes a very individual journey in terms of where you go as a teacher. You know, so I, I think I've definitely seen that uh, that shift. Um, certainly since yeah, maybe what 2017 was the first time I saw other people getting really in, in, interested in you know in real life as opposed to online and um, but now it's it almost seems the norm but then that could be a sort of confirmation bias in schools that i've been working in the next one feeds in really nicely have you ever found resistance to evidence-based practice from middle or senior leaders in your school if so what and why you may not want to talk about your current schools you know you might choose a, an, an example from the past but yeah it must be a must be some examples I really I was thinking about this this morning actually while I was trying to work out what's wrong with my computer the research around teaching assistants and the lack of impact that they have because I obviously work um, predominantly with senkos and teaching assistants and school leaders um, that piece of research always kind of falls apart <laughs> um, and it's really difficult you know with I'm saying no it's not saying that they have no impact it's saying if they're just plonked in a classroom and they're sat next to a child they have no impact and actually you've got to think about how much they support the class teacher to allow the class teacher to do their job so you've kind of got that catalyst there um, and actually a lot of school leaders will say well they have a massive impact and we can't do without them and I'm like no that's you know actually <laughs> sometimes that that it, it, I think it's an EEF piece of research actually and it just doesn't help <laughs> sometimes and I think you have to read it thoroughly and you have to look at the recommendations and not just the headlines I mean that's no fault of school leaders at all that we haven't got time and we're going to read the headlines um, so I think when we approach kind of becoming evidence informed that we are really careful about kind of making sure that we're really clear on on what it's actually saying I don't know if anyone else has found that particularly with kind of that support staff aspect yeah I mean I can't I can't speak to to that particular piece of research but I am I've had conversations around it about this idea that um, it suggests or can be thought of as suggesting that teaching assistants aren't a valuable resource and when of course they are incredibly uh, valuable in the classroom yeah I mean it also comes down to what we can quantify you know because obviously we're working on the assumption that um, this piece of research and other pieces of research that are looking at things in a quantitative quantitative way are saying look this is they're not having an impact on uh, on achievement they're not having a, a measurable impact on achievement so okay so when are you measuring that achievement is it six months down the line is it a year down the line how limited is your measuring of that um, before we jump to, uh, maybe we should consider that, consider that before we jump to particular conclusions. But yeah, I, I, I agree. I think there is a more nuanced understanding of that particular piece of research. Um, and it's just sometimes the headlines that can get in the way of that. One thing I would say is that there are a couple of reasons why we, um, why there might be resistance from middle leaders and senior leaders to research. In some cases, it's just, well, I've put this thing in place. It took me a long time to do it and I don't want to change it now. In some cases, that's actually fine because it seems to be something that's working quite well in that context. And there is kind of what you might call local evidence that it seems to be doing quite well in that results are pretty good. And 
and uh, teachers seem to be able to teach this way particularly well. And so maybe there are other considerations there. But sometimes it is just, no, I don't want to because I've embedded something. It took time. It took effort. There's a, there's a credibility issue if I row back on this so soon, though generally I would argue that um, you have greater credibility if you're willing to reflect, willing to change. It's also worth noting, though, thinking about it from the other side, that a lot of this stuff doesn't exist in a vacuum. So while it can be tempting to look at a piece of research and say, it tells us that this might be a good idea, let's do this. Usually, when we're looking at bits of evidence in an area, um, so an area that I know a bit better than others uh, that might be reading, if you're looking at this stuff, sometimes it gives you a particular principle. This is a good idea. But actually, if you read a bit more around the research, it's like, well, yes, and that's a good idea. But there's also other principles that come from research that kind of butt up against each other a little bit. And it's possible to overdo one thing at the expense of another. And a lot of this, I find, where I've had these conversations with, with, with leaders and teachers about you know, changing something, or, or even in my own experience as a teacher, experimenting with something and there being some pushback saying, mm, maybe that isn't a good idea. A lot of that comes down to a conversation around autonomy. And when you're a class teacher, it's tempting to think that when it comes down, it comes to autonomy, all the only thing you need to bear in mind is how can I maximize how well I am teaching in the classroom, which sounds obvious. It sounds like that's obviously what we should we should be doing, trying to maximize what we're doing in the classroom. But once you're a middle leader or a senior leader, you have other considerations. It might be the case that actually giving teachers that little bit more autonomy so that they can um, reflect on research and try things in their classroom conflicts a little with your desire to make sure that there's just like a, a baseline of adequacy across the school. So it can be, yeah, a little bit more challenging once you're actually in that position of being a middle leader or a senior leader to make those decisions. In short, like I have I have sympathy with middle leaders or senior leaders who sometimes just want to keep something in place just because it it seems to be providing a sensible structure for to guarantee a level of adequacy, even if it doesn't, you know, perfectly align with what evidence might suggest is 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 best practice. But there's that risk, isn't there? That what you're saying is that if we see a piece of research and think, yep, it, you know, it could be a bit of a all change every every time something new comes out and we're like, right, this is what the latest thing is saying, let's do that. And then you end up without that kind of base level of um, competency. And actually, we know that these things are embedded and they do have an impact and we don't want to change that. But I agree with you. I think it's like one thing to focus on and say, okay, this is the bit that you can start grappling with in your classroom or you've got autonomy over this particular aspect of your classroom teaching, um, have a go. I think that, I think you're right because I think that that reassures your schools that actually you know what works and you're not just doing the latest thing, which is that risk, isn't it? Yeah, and there's, de there's definitely that sense that something, um, and I've been there, you want to do, you find out something new and you want to do something with it because it's really just exciting to do a new thing mm. and embedding and thinking and reflecting on something that you've already tried and that is already beginning to make an impact on your classroom can end up being deprioritized. And obviously that's... Um, 
not the best. So yeah, so uh, in other words, another consideration is that sometimes that pushback from senior leaders, when you say, I think this aligns with evidence, I think this is a good idea, might just be them saying, yeah, I agree with you. Let's think about that six months from now. Let's reflect mm-hmm. on this a little bit more. Let's see how that fits in our context. And, and in some cases, they might not be able to tell you that, you know what, we've got some teachers in Upper Key Stage 2, they're new to the profession, they're doing a good job, but they're at the real limits of what they can do now. And if we roll out this new thing across the school, because if we do it, we want to do it across the school, then, and it's only going to work in this case across the school, if we do that, it might be a little bit overwhelming. And they might not want to share the exact details with that for obvious reasons. So, uh, yeah, some, sometimes that pushback is perfectly reasonable pushback from senior leaders is probably because they've got a wider kind of folk they've got a wider vision of actually what you're saying we know that this is going on in key stage two I'm talking primary but key stage two or we know that in early years they're trying to implement you know early language intervention and actually I know that that could possibly be the next step but it's about the implementation because the risk is that you just jump over the implementation plonk it in a classroom and then it falls on its face and actually as a senior leader you don't want teachers to feel like they're failing at something so if you're going to do it you need to do it well and at the right time so yeah I I do feel a bit (laughs) I agree I feel quite sorry for senior leaders sometimes I have to say we're not doing that now but I yeah agreeing with them as well yeah I think both of you have summed up what I'd like to say is that you know whoever you're working with we all want to get better we're all in it for the right reasons, we want the best outcomes for children. Um, but there are so many pressures in middle leadership, particularly most middle leaders are class teachers as well, and it's hard for them to think at that macro level about the whole school whilst thinking about their classroom. Senior leaders are thinking about everything all at the same time. You know, now being one, I know that better than ever, that it is really hard to both think about where you're at right now, what you want to achieve next, and where you see yourself a year or two down the line and I think as people you know as an advisor giving advice I always had to be open to the idea that my suggestion for improvement will help the school at some point but it's not up to me to decide when the school takes that on board people with a position of the overview of the school whether it be the subject leader the senior leader they have to make that choice I can say that by bringing in let's say retrieval practice in your maths lessons is going to really help but they might know, or they will know, way better than me as the external person, whether their teachers, whether their leaders, whether their school has capacity for that now. And if they do, who are the people? It might be this person in year one and this person in year four. They have capacity for that right now. And they're going to be our guinea pigs. They're going to try that out. They're going to make it work. Because we want to get there a year from now, 18 months from now. But we want to do it really well. You know, I've heard Tom Sherrington talk about it on on, the, on his podcast before about that kind of, oh, yeah, we did Rose and Shines. <laughs> you know, schools say, well, we, we did it, but we, you know, we just don't have headspace to keep it going. And that there's always that temptation, isn't there? You know, particularly in primary, so many subjects spanning such a broad age, especially if you're nursery through to year six, so many plates spinning at the same time. So I think it's OK for that to be pushed back from middle leaders and senior leaders to say, not now, actually. I completely agree with you that this is something that we should look into, but not now, actually, because our number one priority right now is this thing. And it might be, you know, sorting out our safeguarding procedures to make sure that everyone is happy, safe and well looked after. And that is taking all of our concentration and focus. And I think as people who give advice, whether it be at trust level or local authority level or 
national level, we have to bear in mind that, you know, everything works somewhere, but nothing works everywhere straight away. You know, <laughs> we all want to improve. We're all, we're all in it for the right reasons, but we have to be open to the idea that it might not be now. And that's okay. We've been rather nice to middle leaders and senior leaders. They're very sympathetic, <laughs> thinking from their perspective. So I'd like to take a moment just to be not quite so nice and just to I say, <laughs> yeah, uh, there are also, of course, occasions where um, senior leaders um, have just bad ideas. And, 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 and beyond that, I mean, quite specifically, in my experience, it tends to be stuff that's kind of seductively closely related to um, what they perceive as outcomes. I'm bound to talk about this, but for example, reading teaching that is SATS practice, and that starts off as being the end of year six, and then it's all of year six, and then it's lots of key stage two, and then it's drifting into key stage one. And it's like, there's nothing to suggest that this is a good idea. But it seems so closely aligned, like they're going to do this test. So and they're going to be asked these kinds of questions. So let's do this. Let's teach them how to answer these kinds of questions. Surely that's got to work. And it's very difficult sometimes to pry um, senior leaders away from this stuff, regardless of what you can put in front of them with regards to research, because it is so it is so seductive to say, look, this is what the this is what the test looks like. Let's do some of this. That will that'll work. So, yeah, there are circumstances where senior leaders just have um, bad ideas and are attempted in by, as I say, seductive kind of outcomes attached practices. And sometimes they just need a bit of a shove to um, move away from them. Do you think that's linked to accountability, though? The amount of accountability. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, do have bad ideas. Yeah, I mean, you absolutely... <laughs> I've, been, I've been one of them that's had bad ideas, and oh. then a year later thought, "What the hell was I thinking there?" And uh, you know, it's about holding your hands up and saying, "Actually, that was a terrible thing to do." Um, not that terrible, just before. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I think that that stems from leadership accountability and probably higher up the chain than than school leaders to be honest um and even trust leaders that you know that accountability it's all on that sats paper in year six and actually that can make previously would have made all you know make or break of, of a school and um so i think it just that pressure builds doesn't it as the the closer you get to the classroom and unfortunately the teachers end up being the ones that get that you're doing this whether you like it or not but yeah I agree with you I wanted to ask you um sorry Kieran <laughs> I'm not trying to derail this but I wanted to ask you about the um the research that came out about read writing in conphonics Chris and how that kind of affected because well to probably Tom as well so you're in primary aren't you because I felt like that came out and it wasn't the great you know it was it was it, I'm going to say it's full of holes, but I, I'm not sure. It was kind of in the middle of COVID, wasn't it? And a lot of the um, the findings were kind of unfinished, people that didn't finish the programme and it showed a lack of um, rigour, etc. But I feel like they used that as I see, we told you synthetic phonics was an absolute waste of time, um, even though everything else around it is saying this is a really good approach. Um, but I wanted to know what you thought about it. Well, fundamentally, the, uh, this is it's, fa it's a fascinating bit of research. I won't talk about it too long, but there are massive holes in it, um, mainly because, um, yeah, dropout rates, um, the number of people who were in the control group, um, the people who 
were in the kind of um, the other the kind of main group who actually um, didn't complete the program or didn't follow the program particularly. But even then, you dig into it and it's like, oh, okay, so it seems to be that there is relatively minimal but slightly positive um, impacts associated with read writing. But what's the control group? The control group is it's in England, so it's other people doing different phonics programs. So it is in no way a um, a test of whether phonics is effective. It is looking at Read Write Inc. as a famous, ex- relatively expensive program and saying, does this work better than other synthetic phonics programs? And it seems to suggest maybe, very slightly, hard to tell, and lots of flaws in the research. But to use it as a way of comparing synthetic phonics to not would be... Um, yeah, it would be an, an absurd misreading of the research, but you know, this is phonics, so absurd misreadings of the research are. Yeah, I just um, felt like everyone sort of went, see, we told you. And I thought, hold on a minute. <laughs> um, yeah, well, th- there were a group of people out there who, um, who not only cr- make research and put it out there as a way of getting headlines in particular newspapers or on particular radio programs, there are people who will intentionally misinterpret that research. But over time, you learn how to recognize these individuals and these institutions, and you begin to take their conclusions with something of a pinch of salt. If I can, I'll just come in there on a slightly related point. I think some of our senior leaders and exec leaders feel like they've been burnt in the past by quote unquote bad research. Um, Things like learning styles, you know, the impact that had on the way people taught, planned, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think for some senior leaders, there's always a hesitancy that the, the next new thing could be later disproven. You know, we could put huge time, effort, energy into this right now, only to find out that the research it's based on is, flimsy at best or self-referential or or those kind of things and I think for those senior leaders if they are apprehensive if they are reluctant to take on board evidence-informed practice we have to get to the bottom of why what what is it that's putting them off putting that thing in place so yeah read write ink is a good one you know lots of schools in the, currently and in the last few years have really considered which phonics program they're going to use and why it has huge implications not just financial but you know the allocation of people resources all of those kind of things so you want to know don't you that what you're making your decision on is based on really sound practice and i get why some schools are hesitant and they want to see other people in their local area do things first you know that kind of well that school down the road's trialing it now so I'm going to wait a year and see how they get on and what their teething problems are before I make a decision one way or the other. So, yeah, I think we do have to be bear in mind that not all of our evidence-informed practices in the past have been well-founded or well-supported, you know, particularly with learning styles in mind and those kind of things. And sometimes that can play into people's mind. Just to go back to the point that Chris was saying as well about, you know, the bad ideas and doing things like teaching to the test and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes it happens because our now senior leaders were seemingly successful as class teachers back in the day. You know, when they were class teachers, they did these things. It brought them great success. And then you get, then you get, you know, well, well-worn teachers going, oh, everything comes back around every 10, 15 years. Well, yeah, because our new leaders 
were in the classroom 10, 15 years ago doing these things, having success, and they're bringing it back. So, yeah, sometimes a bad idea or something that we bring back is because the people bringing back that idea had success doing it at the time, you know, and that's, again, understandable, not an easy nut to crack um, to convince those people that they've got survivorship bias. Yeah, you're, you're one of the few that survived APP, but it doesn't mean it's a great idea to bring it back round, you know. So, um, yeah, lo- lots of reasons why there can be that kind of reluctance. Um, you We've know, got genuine. enough people leaving the uh, profession without bringing uh, APP folders back. I think I still have uh, trauma in f- <laughs> from logging those folders around with highlighters. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And now, you know, in lots of schools, we've just replaced it with digital versions of APP where you just <laughs> yeah. just do all of these KPIs for every child, for every subject. Oh, yeah. Easy to forget that APP was originally when I when I dealt with it, it was like, oh, do it for these three or five, three, four mm. or five children. And people were like, no, this is impossible. And now there are schools asking people to do that for all 30. And also history and geography. <laughs> no, well, I did. I got lucky. Oh, that was right at the start of my career. So, um yeah, my first year of teaching, we were in one of the trial schools. You know, there's like a thousand trial schools across the country that had to try out APP for a year before it became a national thing. And we had to give our thoughts on how it went. And our, our report back on how it went was um, don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously, we got ignored. And, you know, because uh, it, it was always planned to come in anyway, wasn't it? Regardless teachers of love thought. highlighters, Tom. That is true. In the in the chat, Emerson, she thinks it's part of its surface level understanding of research without the depth. And obviously, one of the things we always talk about in the podcast is the idea that we're going to try and spend a year reading about something before you go anywhere near implementation. You know, and as much as you really want to get involved right now, oh, I've read this really good paper, I've read about Rosenshine's principles of instruction. Let's do it tomorrow. You know, get getting that depth. I think Emma's absolutely right is is key, and she threw that in in terms of, you know, while you were talking about phonics, Chris. So I think maybe that, uh, that debate would be better served by a fuller understanding of, uh, of the facts or the, the available information um, for, across all sides of the, of the aisle, I think. I mean, we're going we're gonna to be pushed to try and get the last two questions in here. Um, you guys done a fantastic job of talking about evidence-informed practice um now this one's going to be a personal one what's the single most influential experience you have had in terms of changing your perspective or your practice in an evidence-based way so now tom do you want to start us off with that one uh yeah I've, I've got a few examples that come to mind um the first was a liberating example, which um, not many people will have. But when I moved to Thailand to teach over there, I worked in a school that didn't have many established systems or structures. And a lot of the kind of the must-do things that you find yourself in doing in the UK, I no, I no longer had those pressures. So I could look at my practice and go, I never wanted to do that thing. I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> um, so, yeah, in the time, you know, kind of building up to going out there, I had a good seven, eight months when I knew I got the job before when I was going out and I'd spoken to the kind of founder of the school and, it was very much a case of if you have a really good idea of, of, of doing something or the way something should work, you have the opportunity to try it out here. It might work, it might work really well. Uh, it, it might not, but you now have the option because you can try it out. Um, and I spent those kind of seven, eight months reading really heavily around uh, how we learn multiplication tables. 
um, because I was moving to teach a year three, year four group of children uh, who'd come from all over the world, prior different experiences and those kind of things. And I, I basically read and watched as many different things as possible this yeah, the kind of summer before 2014, uh, and basically created a program that I thought I could do this. This could work really well. I'm in charge of my timetable. I'm in charge of my resource. I'm in charge of, charge of all of those kind of things. Um, and yeah, it was because the sh kind of the shackles of what we always do and doing what we've always done were off and I could do that. Um, so for me, it was that kind of liberating, being trusted, giving that autonomy. We are employing you because we know you're good. We know you've got these good ideas. You've got a proven track record. Go for it. And I think sometimes now I'm in the position as a senior leader, identifying when we can do that for some of our colleagues going, you know what, in this area, in this thing, go for it. Be bold, be brave, read up the research, try something out and go for it. Even if you're the only person in your school trying it, I'll be by your side as, you're, as, you, as you want to go into that. And as our school now... Uh, as the spring term starts, we're going to look into bringing in um, professional inquiry projects as part of people's uh, performance management. The, we've given them kind of a background of different things that might, they might want to read up on. And now in this next half term, I'm going to sit down with people as part of their PD and think about what is it that you are really interested in, that you want to get to the bottom of, that you want to try out, that's going to be your bold move. And I'll be there and I'll help, I'll help you do that. Um, so yeah, that was really influential on my practice. And now I want to support the colleagues I work with doing the same thing. When I first moved over, I thought this was the way things had to be done, you know, because it was a totally new system. Um, I think, okay, right, I'll, I'll get really good at this. And then I'm, I think it was Mark answer was saying, saying about them. Um, what would happen if you just didn't do some of this stuff? Would it make a difference? And I'm like, oh, if only I'd known this a long time ago, <laughs> your life might have been a bit easier. I mean, what about you, Cassie? What was your watershed moment? Taking on a, a special measures school and that nothing being in place, like Tom just sort of saying, oh, there's nothing here. So I can just start putting things in and seeing what happens, basically. Uh, but didn't have the luxury of time, unfortunately. Um, and I think I learned an awful lot um, from doing that. And I think even though we were in, you know, we were in an adequate school, very inadequate school, it it did feel looking back, it, that was a luxury, actually, not having to kind of grapple with people saying, I'm not doing that. It's like, well, there's no choice because there's nothing in place. So we're actually starting from ground zero. But actually, I think um, only a couple of years ago, the school did some work um, with uh, a Kent project around deprivation. And um, we worked on implementing some evidence-informed practice around um, language, um, early language acquisition and vocabulary further up the school. And we worked with Mark Rowland and Sean Allison. And um, I didn't realise how much how little I knew about implementation and the importance of absolutely getting that spot on. So it was really nice. It was almost like handholding. They sort of said, <laughs> very, it was very layman's terms, but this is the research. This is what it tells us. And this is what your context and your demographic and your community looks like. And this is how you put your implementation plan together this is how you do your CPD and this is how you then track whether it works or not. And these are the barriers that you might come across. And actually just going back to the basics and reminding me as a senior leader of actually all of the things that I needed to consider before putting them in because previously we didn't have that 
kind of luxury and it was like we're doing this <laughs> we're implementing this and you just need to get on with it actually it was so much more powerful to go back to the basics and learn relearn that and make sure that I had a real deep a much deeper understanding of getting that implementation bit right um so I think and that was really nice to do having already done things previously and and realizing oh that's why that didn't work before or oh that's why that bit was particularly useful at that point um I think things happened quite naturally um but but going back to that was really really useful uh, my kind of moment as such is probably a bit more prosaic um I remember very specifically about five or six years into my teaching career being asked to teach maths via guided groups so we were asked to you know divide kids basically into ability groups or attainment groups teach them kind of one at a time focus on their own version of whatever explanation of whatever you were teaching that day and then to kind of move around the room and to have a teaching assistant working with one of those groups as well and to so bounce between giving support and them doing stuff independently and I kind of made it work I like to think the results didn't weren't disastrous etc but we were asked to do that and then new leadership came in and just to say, the reason we put that in place was because the local authority had said, this is, you know, this is the gold standard, do this. And then new leadership came in and said, no, don't do that. That's a bad idea. And we all stopped doing it. And immediately I thought, oh, so none of you know what's going on. <laughs> you're all you're all making it up. You're all <laughs> lost as I am. And I just felt emboldened to do my own, own thing. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a really bad way to say this, but... Also, as part of that, and a little bit later, meeting senior leaders and people higher than that, who were in, so people in positions of authority, who were at least, as far as I could tell, pretty inept, that gave me, that emboldened me to go, oh, okay, yeah, I should be taking way more responsibility for what I'm doing. I should not just be trying to do um, the best version of what they think teaching looks like you know, that's, that's not good enough. I need to take more responsibility because then the people above me sometimes might just be a bit inept. So that was uh, the thing. Just a note about the guided groups thing. That was more like a straw that broke the camel's back. It wasn't just that. Um, I say straw that broke the camel's back, but I think a better um, metaphor might be the buckaroo donkey. Just a, a number of things had been put on me to the point that at some point, you just go, nope, <laughs> everything goes everywhere. And you think, no, I'm going to do my own thing for a bit and see what happens. Um, so yeah, guided groups and then suddenly being asked not to do that in mathematics was a kind of a turning point for me when it comes to evidence-informed practice. The uh, the whole, oh, no one really knows what they're doing, do they? Is quite a powerful one. Mine was, uh, I think it must have been 2013-ish because it was between the publication of the new, well, at that time, new National Curriculum Draft Consultation and before it became real. Um, and I was at an, I think it might have been an Ofsted session on what the new sort of greater depth in inverted commas meant. And I was going, oh, God, yeah, this, this doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> this isn't a thing. Um, you know, and clearly, yeah, and that, that was a minute for me. Well, okay, maybe maybe I'm going to have to tone back the deference to authority in, in, in this situation. But it, yeah, it was like, almost like a watershed moment. What's an area of teaching where you wish, and Sam has put wish in capital letters, all caps, 
there was more or better evidence. You know, what should researchers like Sam focus on? I mean, this feels like a once in a lifetime opportunity to influence the direction of his research. So this is your opportunity. I don't know, Chris, do you want to take us on that one? Yeah, you won't be surprised to hear where I'm starting with this. Uh, But I would love to see some decent research on the impact of what you might call reading mileage, because there are vast differences in the amount of reading that children do in schools. And uh, informally, I I strongly suspect that that has a major difference, uh, sorry, causes major differences in outcomes. But, you know, there, there isn't really the research into that. I mean, ironically, it's one of these areas, you know, that's so um, intuitive that people don't, there doesn't seem to be much research on the idea of whether um, reading mileage is supportive of, of outcomes. What there is, is lots of um, correlational evidence that suggests that those that read more tend to do better and vice versa, but it's hard to know which way causation runs on that. So a decent bit of evidence that says, look, we're going to look at two. And there, there are natural experiments that I think you could find there, just looking at the ways that different, relatively similar trusts do things um, that might be useful. So yeah, reading mileage would be one. Um, I'd really like some, I'd like some decent, to see some decent research on the impact of the explicit teaching of basic mental arithmetic, in particular via things like, um, so if you think about programs that exist out there, like Numbots and TT Rockstars, that seems like a, a pretty sensible way to find out whether actually making sure that pupils have this foundational understanding and at what age we want them to have this foundational understanding, like what impact does that have? I think that would be something I'd really like to know more about. Again, because this just follows my intuition that I think that this stuff is particularly important. And I think having this research to buttress good practice that's already out there and to allow schools to have a little bit more, little bit more confidence that yes, this is a good idea. It doesn't have to be, you know, Numbots or TT Rockstars. I mean, it could be like number sense. It could be something that schools have put in place themselves. It doesn't have to be a program like that. It just might mean that that sort of thing makes it a little bit more clearly distinct about what's going on. Uh, final one. I'd like to say, <laughs> sorry, I wrote down three. I thought I was being quite... Uh, <laughs> I'm saying, what is Anaria? Anaria. I would like to whisper more wishes. <laughs> <laughs> Sam's met me, so he knows where this is going. I'm looking at the quick, I'm looking at the time. I'll be dead quick. Let's say final one. Um, you know that... You know, the big thing about one of the key things about direct instruction, capital D, capital I, is there's lots of covering of old ground alongside introducing new stuff. You know, sometimes the balance is like 80, 90 percent. Then I'd like to see particular research into kind of everyday classroom practice that looks at that and says, well, this school is or this group of schools are doing lots of covering of old ground in each lesson compared to this one that are maybe just doing a little of that or none of that. What's the difference in outcomes? I will stop talking now so others can chip in. But yeah, sorry, Sam, three things. I was going to say the times table check would be a really useful tool for that, Chris, in year four. So you could you could see the outcomes and then find out what they do. Unsurprisingly, something around mental health, well-being, um, the impact of nurture provisions, some research around whether they actually have positive impact. I think there's a lot of research about mental health and well-being and most of it's negative, um, but some positive stuff um, to make sure that, you know, I think we fill a gap in schools that should come from kind of outside agency. And it would be really nice to know that it's actually having a positive impact 
on children's mental health and well-being so so an area like that would be really useful I think I only had one because <laughs> I followed the rules you get a gold star for following the rules <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean I, I'd say our, our nurture in our school it does absolute wonders you know I have thrive practitioners that work in that nurture setting do absolute wonders not only for the mental health of the children that access it but their families too their teachers and the peers of the children who who get the most support yeah I think that would be a great great area um, yeah, very briefly then, my one is about um, cognition and learning in the early years. Uh, lots of research around cognitive load, etc. Focus on older people because it relies on people explaining what they're thinking about and how they're thinking and feeling at the time. Uh, but you can't really do that with three, four and five-year-olds. They can't give you that same kind of insight. There's no way of seeing what they're thinking or or them explaining it very clearly. And I think sometimes the advice given to earliest practitioners, even as far as nursery, et cetera, is based on advice that we know worked well, or we think worked well for much older people and older children. Uh, so I'd love that. My wish would be that how can we really find out um, about cognition, how learning happens in the, in the very early stages of formal and informal learning? That would be my one. Not an easy one. Well, wish was in capital letters, so you know I've gone for it. That's awesome, fantastic. I mean, I would add to it that if you were going to do Chris's, I would like a really large sample size. And I think with the, the programs that Chris suggests, that might be possible. But I read so many, um, so many research papers where the sample size in mathematics research is is less than twenty, and um, I would love a sample of thirty thousand to. Uh, to really sort of uh, get under the skin and make some make some broad generalizations because I don't f feel I have the the tools at my disposal to to make those sometimes you know particularly when I looked at manipulatives you know you're talking groups of three or four sometimes in that research but um but I mean guys I think I could have booked this in for two hours and we could have easily filled it I had, I had to curtail the conversation um you know it's been absolutely wonderful all I said to do is say thank you very much for joining me thank you for your generosity. Mm -hmm.